Future Hacker Life Path Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taidi, and today we are talking to Jess Groom. With over 10 years of experience of practically applying behavior science in business, societies, and communities, Jess established himself as one of the world's leading practitioners in the field. He's the founder of Kauri Consulting, which works with some of the biggest brands and businesses in the world, including Amazon, Sky, Tesco, HSBC, and Fidelity. Kauri Consulting is also a member of Diversify, a global network focused on driving diversity and inclusivity in this growing field. He's the author of Ripple, The Big Effects of Small Behavior Changes in Business, and is also an honorary research fellow at the Department of Psychology at City University in London. Jazz, it's just amazing to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm very, very good. The sun is shining um, here in London um, for the first time of the year. Yeah, so super good. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. You know what, Jess? I just would love to go straight to it. You know, let's talk about behavior science at scale. You know, just to get our listeners started on this topic, could you give us some key insights from your book, Ripple? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we wrote Ripple. Maybe it was a bit ahead of its time. I think a lot of behavioral science books have been written about uh, heuristics and mental shortcuts and biases and then how those shortcuts and biases, I suppose, come together to, to either create or, or inhibit behavior change. The basics, right? The brilliant basics, you know? So, I mean, I couldn't do that work. You know, I'm inspired continually by the work done by the academic community, for sure. But a book hadn't been written about, okay, taken out of the laboratory, like how do you start to scale this within organizations, you know, on, on what's required. And because maybe I've been doing that since, yeah, 2009-ish, maybe we were a little bit ahead of the game. So what we weren't trying to do is to write, write a behavioral science book that was cleverer than the clever people had written before. It was about actually making behavioral science accessible, democratizing the insights such that normal people could use them. And I think I think that's what we set out to do. So we deliberately made it really, really easy to read. So we use short, simple sentences. We use simple language, chunked up the information into bite-sized chunks with tips about how you might practically apply this. So you could dip it in and out of a chapter literally within sort of five, five or ten minutes. What's interesting is I kind of knew when you put yourselves out there creatively, there is always some people that might challenge or you know there's nothing new here you know with some of the comments that you get on the book reviews i suppose there, there is something new is that a lot of behavioral science books actually are quite hard to read um they're not simple to digest they're not democratizing the insights for normal people at all you know i think some of them are deliberately written in a way that only academics would understand because that's the intended audience so yeah so the, the insights i think we came out of it were you know if we're looking to do behavioral science at scale you need to bring a lot of people with you isn't enough to just bring three or four behavioral scientists that you work with every day. You know, you need to be, I suppose, conversant in, in language and, and processes that can bring thousands of people along with you. So, um, so that was kind of like some of the key insights about why we wrote the book the way that we did. The insights in the book, you know, there's 39 different, I suppose, sort of tips and toolkits at the end. 
of each section. So there's usually about three, three per chapter. And some of them are very, very simple. You know, if you're going to do a workshop about behavioral science, make sure the first interaction is a really, really positive and powerful one. So, you know, when people are arriving for breakfast and starting to figure out what they've got on for the day and what's going to happen in the day, um, then help them with that. And, and that might sound really obvious and not even be behavioral science, but it is, you know, essentially the primacy effect, first impressions count are critical. So, you know, think about it, choreograph the experience in your daily life to actually democratize the insights and themselves. The behavioral science community sometimes, I think, doesn't practice what it preaches. So, you know, making things easily understandable um, in digestible chunks and getting confirmation that people have understood um, is something that I think everyone would benefit in the community, I think. Talking about this comment that you said that you have to bring so many people together, right, to make it work, it sounds that there's a complexity naturally behind that. So what, what's your thought regarding this movement of companies, at least the big techs, like you know Uber, that they're, they're bringing it in-house, at least, well, they have the money to invest on it, but... Do you think that companies should be just uh, doing it by themselves? Wouldn't it be wiser to at least be partnering with companies, you know, just like yours that has this expertise and has the ac academic side that hardly the business would have? What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I'm very, very clear in terms of my view is um, you need three communities, a tribrid, I think. So you need people inside the organization, people that work for the organization every day that are skilled in behavioral science. And that might be like eight to maybe 30 people if it's a really big global organization. And um, you need to have outside people such as consultancies to essentially add further capability or different types of capability. And then the critical component, which I don't think people actually appreciate as much as they should. I think Kike is a BBVA really, really grasped this is You need to train a lot of people within the organization, like hundreds and thousands of people, so that there is a common shared language. So when the behavioral science practice inside the business, they talk, or whether external consultants come in, everybody has got that kind of shared understanding and can do the work more effectively. And critically, I think thousands of people often are required to execute the behavioral science. So they need to understand the bits that matter. My frustration is that... Um, a lot of consultancies go, oh, absolutely, you know, outside companies are better. And then all the, the behavioral science hubs are like, no, 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 you know, inside's sort of better. And, you know, you look at most professional services, sort of areas of growth, it's generally a combination of those three. So people in the organization understand it, can execute against it, people inside really to deliver it, and then outside, you know, is required as, as and when. So I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than that. Yeah, makes sense. And a lot of education needed, right? So let's talk about some behavior science use cases. There's this very interesting white paper available at Cowrie's website. It's called On the Brain. And there's a lot of really interesting content in there. So guys, if you're interested in the topic, I definitely recommend you go over there. I was reading specifically the one about going back to the office. And one of the things, uh, you know, from, the, from COVID and everything. So one of the things it states is how complex works So the types of works that are more complex benefit from the social interaction provided by in-person contact at the office against the social distancing at work. So I'd love to cover how could behavior science be helping, you know, the employees experience and the challenge of coming back to work from the pandemic isolation? I think the pandemic 
was, you know, an amazing kind of an, an experimental sandbox for behavioral science. And predominantly, it was, you know, a, a huge kind of experiment for how governments could then persuade, influence, change the behavior of, of thousands of people to stay away from work and work in different ways and stay away from each other. And I think, you know, that was pretty, pretty effective. I think it's a relatively simple message to understand. And there's a lot of compliance. I think vaccination, I think, has been more tricky because, you know, there's a lot of cultural context around that uh, that, that really, really does make a difference, but that generally that's been fairly high. And then, yeah, the, the return to work and the great resignation, you know, hybrid working, etc. For sure, there are things that you can do um, to, I suppose, improve the working environment at home and improve the working environment in the office. You know, we've been, you know, working through some of the framing of some of those things. So, you know, some people talk about three and two, three days in the office, two days at home, sort of, et cetera. And we are sort of a creative, sort of relatively complex sort of business in terms of the, 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 the knowledge, the IP. We basically said, we think we're an office first business. And that's not because myself and Will are over 50 and white and male, you know, predominantly that our, our senior leadership team is, is female and we've got a huge cross-cultural team. But we know we do our best work um, after canvassing our people is, is when we are physically together. But we know that there's sometimes when work can be done at home more equally sort of better. And um, so we've always had that anyway. So, you know, data science work or design work where you need long period of focus time, you know, working as an individual often or digitally, you know, with other people, then, then you could do that uh, remotely. So I think there's been lots and lots of sort of transactional, as I would say, kind of insights about, you know, how you might frame this, how you might communicate this. The one thing that I have seen, which I really, really do like, is organizations really need to focus on creating a sense of belonging. So that classic sort of in-group, and how do you nurture that feeling that you're part of something for which you contribute to and get things from? That's what we focus a lot of our time on. So how do we create a sense of belonging at Cowrie so people want to spend time with each other, um, digitally or physically, they choose? And then how do we create that sense to come together? So so we've done a number of kind of initiatives and, um, you know, we've had, you know, the normal kind of away day type activities, not so much work, more fun, but trying to create that sense of belonging. So so my, my advice would be for, for companies would be, of course, think about, you know, how many days a week is preferable, what days a week are preferable, how, what rooms you've got, what facilities you've got in those rooms, um, what type of work have been done in what rooms, or, all that type of stuff. But the most important thing is if you want people to, to work at their optimal levels, um, how do you create a sense of belonging without it being a cult? I mean, there's nothing worse as the, than everybody slavishly working for something which isn't giving them what, they, what it should. You know, it's a job, it's a career. You've got your personal life and your family and friends that are far more important. So I, I think that would be the behavioral science insight that I've really, really pick, picked up on and trying to drive through uh, with the team here. Yeah, makes sense. And I think that as, as long as people, I, I like what I said, the sense of belonging, because at the end, if, if people can understand the value and understand the meaning, it's a, a step ahead, right? There are so many companies that are just forcing people, you either go or you don't go, with, but without the whole embracing part. And it just, it, then it wouldn't make sense. Okay, so, you know, let's cover behavior science being used for the future of retail. We had a great conversation when we did an intro call when we were talking about all the, the trends of personalization and 
not only the advantages, but all the consequences, if it's done wrong, who should be curating that? Could we cover that again? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. You know, I'm incredibly optimistic about the way in which digital is going to sort of enhance the way that we buy things, like make them, you know, super frictionless and then but sort of hyper relational, you know, and, and really have a deep understanding of who you are and what you want such that you enjoy the experience, but you spend exactly the right amount of time on that experience. You know, the opposite, of course, is I did it yesterday in a physical environment. You know, I, I had to find a fuse for a plug because an le- electrical device had broken. And I thought, I tried a few things and thought it must be the fuse in the plug. And I had to dry. It was Sunday, the st- big store, hardware store to close. Um, I had to go and drive to, you know, a garage and then drive to a supermarket trying to explain to them what a fuse was. I mean, I was like, I could have a fuse for a plug. I mean, people didn't even know what they were. And it was just painful. And in the end, I gave up and um, essentially had to go and find a device in the garage that had the same plug and change it over. So, yes, yeah, so I think think we know what badly curated, um, time-wasting shopping experiences are. And um, so, so I'm definitely in favour of kind of micro-segmented at an individual level and then hyper-personalised. Um, but the curation of those experiences is, is really quite sort of ethically and kind of confused, I think, at the moment. And um, I remember when I used to work more in advertising before behavioural science, this is like going back 15, 16 years, there was a fascination with facial recognition to then show different advertisements on posters. And they were talking about, well, we could show if the camera picked up it was a man or a woman, then we could show a male or a female version, etc. And at that time, even then, I was saying, I think ethically it could be, be misused or misinterpreted. Certainly, obviously, we've developed and progressed brilliantly, I think. Still a lot more work to do on gender, which is great, I think, in terms of broadening out those definitions and driving knowledge. Um, but also emotions, you know, there's a lot of fascination in marketing with targeting people through emotions. And at, at that time, which I'll say again, I don't think it's right to look at people's facial expressions, even though I think it's flawed, and articulate an emotion and then sell them a product off the back of that. You know, so selling people chocolate when they're sad, I don't think is, is a good thing to try and cheer them up. So I think there's kind of like broad kind of issues. The more behavioral science issues are, is that good ethical practice of behavioral science allows people to choose from a range of options um, and often a limitless amount of options if they choose to. So, you know, if I am going through a metaverse, I don't, you know, or a digital experience and it's being curated just for me, somebody else has decided what I'm going to see and what I can't see. And it's the can't see that really matters. So, you know, I think... As an ethical behavioural scientist, it's always about saying, well, this is one option that you could take, but there are, are others. Would you like to see them? And then displaying them in a, in a way that people could really, really understand. So, so yes, yeah, so I'm hoping that that will be taken on board by the personalisation um, in digital kind of cohort of, of, of designers to say, at any point, you should have the opportunity to jump out and look at something different. You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong to say, yes, we know you love handbags. Um, these are all handbags that you looked at before. Um, there's a new one that's come out from one of those brands. Is that something that you would like to see? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think there should always be an option to say, but there are other handbags that have also come on that aren't the brands that you chose. Is that something that you would also like to look at too? And then it's my choice. Um, and that's signaled in a way which is kind of, and salient and um, I can choose not to or to so so yeah so I'm really looking forward to kind of that world but I'm just hoping that personalization designers have got that in their heads 
Yeah, and for sure we're still in, in this place that we do have the personalization, but it's still very annoying, especially because the algorithms, they don't know the context in which you are inserted, right? So maybe I just bought this for someone else and it has nothing to do with me. And this ad is going to be chasing me for the next three months, right? And for sure, we all know, and we've been discussing here a lot in Future Hacker, how technologies are going to be helpful. But, you know, as long as you have a qualified and diversified team behind that, building those technologies that are going to make those decisions for us. And I like that you mentioned uh, the ethics behind that as well. When you research about uh, behavior science and ethics, there's this whole speech about the importance of being transparent and giving the choice. So it's really great that you brought that in the context as well. But at the end, I, I understand that besides all of the challenges, you feel optimistic of, of having better experiences in the future, thanks not only to the studies, but to the technologies as well, right? Yeah, no, no, for sure. I, you know, I really, really do think that having knowingly designed experiences is better than unknowingly designed. So much has been designed in the world, usually by the designer without sort of consultation to the to the end user. And all the best designs, I think, have had, you know, iterations based on that feedback, whether the entirety of that, that as you say, the context of, of, of that person has been, been fully understood. I'm not so sure. And, you know, often it's kind of qualitative judgment based on what the person is saying. I'm not saying that's wrong, but sometimes people do feedback things. They know that people would like to hear or other people would like to, to see them say but I'm not so sure they're necessarily sort of telling the, the whole truth um, all of the time, you know, especially when it's due to like, yeah, quite conspicuous kind of high kind of luxury brand type type things. You know, if someone said, look, you know, here's an amazing, here's an amazing car, you know, it's worth a supercar, you know, and it's in, you know, gold plated. Some people might take the car and go, yeah, it's amazing. You know, but actually there's thinking this is awful, you know, it looks awful, you know, and it's not something that, they would ever, ever ever want but because it's been given to them then of course they're they're saying it's great so so yes i think the world of design i think has got a lot to learn from the subconscious um, as much as the conscious and i think i think we've spent a bit too much time listening to the conscious i think i think the world's gonna be better definitely thank you so much jess so everybody this is the end of the first episode we still have a lot to talk with jess groom so stay tuned we're going to the second episode future hacker life path, future.